I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we are taking the core of a person and adding a wig and boobs and sparkles and our opinions. And if you just want the core, if you just want to know exactly who that person is in and out, baby, read the book yourself, check Wikipedia. There are a number of ways to find out. But if you want the pizzazz, if you want the theme park on top, come on with us. And don't forget, if you want even more from us, you can listen to our Patreon episodes every single Thursday. Last week, we talked about breakups, comma, Ariana Grande and Sofia Vergara. We also talk about what a bridal shower even is. And we are reviewing and just like that every single week. But once that ends, we are going to start talking about Tori Spelling more. I think we're going to watch So Notorious for the Patreon. So if you are interested in a summer of spelling, a year of spelling, a lifestyle of spelling, that is coming up. And Ashley. Yes, Claire. My good friend. Hello. If you were a celebrity yourself and you were to write a memoir based on last week, what would you chapter it? I would title it Things Are Coming Together. I have a tendency, I think, whenever there is like a marked date of something or like something big I'm waiting for, I feel like my life can't start until it happens. And in this case, it was my couch. I bought a couch in the beginning of December and it finally got delivered this last week and I had so much anxiety over like the delivery and missing the delivery window because they were being so difficult and complicated and there was just like so much that the last couple months I honestly have been like nothing is even real until the couch is here like my apartment doesn't exist until the couch is here like none of this is even a thing until the couch is here. And the couch is here. It was everything I hoped it would be and more. And now my life starts but I also hope that I've learned my lesson and like won't do that again. What, order a couch? No, put my life on pause until something friggin' trivial like a couch showing up happens. (laughs) Anyway, Claire, if you were to write a chapter about your week, what would you title it? There's so many things. Me and Ashley lived a friggin' lifetime this morning. So much has already happened to us. I know. And I wish this was the Patreon so I could just do a blow-by-blow of exactly what went down today. I know. Because it was chaotic. But basically, Ashley had to be a witness for me to get something notarized. And here's what I want to say. This man ruined my life by like refusing to text me back and telling me if he was available or not. It is one thing to be late. It is one thing to have to bail. I get the plans changed last minute. But when you waste people's time in an avoidable way, nothing makes me angrier. There was no reason for him to not say yesterday, like, no, I just can't tomorrow morning. Ashley's day was ruined because she has been ready to go to the Upper East Side. We had to go to the Upper East Side. That's not a day's journey. That is like a year-long trek. She isn't ready since 4 a.m. this morning. (laughs) I was fully dressed and ready to leave the house at 9 a.m. for the 10 o'clock appointment. And then it got moved to 11.30. So I was like, okay, I'll leave my house at 10.30. And so then I left my house at 10.30 and I was on the platform when the 11.30 moved to 12.15. And I was like, all right. I did not go running this morning because I fully anticipated having to be like dressed presentably for a 10 o'clock appointment. It's not my fault, but I just still am sad that I wasn't able to do you justice by being really rude to the guy who kept fucking us over. Mac wouldn't let me. Every time I started to go in on him, Mac would take the phone. And then it was very much like the bench situation, a situation where I was so mad and ready to go be so rude to his face and be like, you know, you really can't treat people like this. And then is it fair for me to say the minute we met him, (laughs) I was like, oh, you are not a worthy adversary. To be mad at you makes me look crazy. He wasn't an enemy. He was a fella. He was a goof. (laughs) He had the body of Randall from Monsters, Inc. (laughs) And the texture. (laughs) 
So I think at the end of the day, we did have fun. And then as a thank you to Ashley, I took her to Zaybar's. Which makes Air One look like a fucking piece of shit gas station stop. Okay, let me tell you. I took Ashley there as a little treat. How did you like it? Really delish. I don't spend a lot of time on the Upper East Side, believe it or not. But that grocery store is a destination. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know that I am a grocery store gal through and through. And now I'm here and I bought all this candy at Zaybars and I ate it all and I have a headache kind of that I gave myself. So what was the question? <laughs> what would I call this week? A headache. Because I got a sugar headache and that guy gave me a headache. Should we get into this week's sweet headache? Yes. Our friend Dolly Parton. My life and other unfinished business. Can I just say, I almost called her Dolly Patterson. (laughs) (laughs) That's a real Claire name if I've ever heard one. (laughs) The thing with Dolly is, this book itself has a drawl. It is a slow-moving book for the Dolly stands and the stands only. It's Dolly merch. But I'm excited to get into Dolly. I do want to say first and foremost, this book was written in 1994. So if you're looking for any stories of what it was like to raise Miley, I don't think she was born yet. (laughs) I think she might have actually just been born. Oh, she's 92, just like me, right? Mm -hmm. Miley's actually exactly the same age as me. But she wasn't like famous enough to make the book. This is an old school book. It's very much in the style of Betty White of, and then this happened, and then this happened. It doesn't really give you an insight into her psyche. There are some good moments where you just go, wait, what? It's a real like, come here, grandbaby, sit on my knee and let me tell you a tale. And she tells you the tale. I will say this book exactly was like The Princess Bride. Have you seen that movie? No. Ugh. They probably have. Keep going. Okay, well, it's like the overarching thing of the movie is a grandpa is reading the story to his grandson when his grandson is having a sick day. And at first, the grandson is like, this is so boring. Stop telling me the story. And by the end, he's like, wait, 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 keep going, keep going, keep going. I had to find out how it ends. And I don't feel like that really happened with this book, but I do feel like it was like, okay, here we go with the story that I feel like it's respectful to listen to. And by the end, I was like, well, here are some interesting things. This book reminded me of Betty White and then a little bit of Common in that it's so removed. She's not like getting into the psyche of it. She's like looking back at her life and the way that she's rounded it out. It's too many characters for Wikipedia. But if Wikipedia was an actual encyclopedia and not just a Google Doc, this would all be in there. Yeah. So I was born January 19th, 1946 in a one-room cabin on the banks of Little Pigeon River in the Great Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee. And we will get into some of the stories, but the first 100 pages are about being poor in the river. Yeah, she was dirt poor. She grew up poor, which is the next sentence. And her mom got married to her dad when she was 15. Her dad was 17. And in 20 years, she had 12 kids. So that woman, as Dolly says, always had one on her and one in her, which sounds brutal. Brutal. I will say I do like this outlining of what the book is going to be in this little prologue. I will try to outline the events in my life that shaped, touched, or warped, or otherwise made me who I am. I'm not saying that my life is one that other lives should be patterned after. Actually, I think it's a big mistake to pattern yourself much after anybody else. So she goes into like what version of the story this is going to be. And I like that she said this because I do feel like a lot of the bad memoirs we read are like, here is what I did and here's how you should do it too. Like you need to do this. You need to do that. And in just every category of fame, people are writing books like that. And it's like, no, that's absolutely insane to sit down and think that your version of the story is the one that should be replicated. Like there's no such thing as replicating a story. And so I like that she took the time to acknowledge that. Her dad was a sharecropper. And then when she was three or four years old, he was able to save $5,000 and buy them a home. 
But they always just lived in like one room, all of them. It was go outside and don't come back till it's dinner time. Everything in the story, it sounds like if she hadn't ended up very successful and been interested in packaging herself as easy to go down, I would say. Do you know what I mean? Like nothing about her book, even the things that are objectively hard, does she want to make you suffer through. And so it's very much this glamorized version of being poor in Americana. Everything ends with like a little ism or a fun and game corncob doll. Yeah, there's like a little turn of phrase and they're cute and they're funny. But I think this exact same story could have been told tragically. Like this is very similar to the Viola Davis story. But if Viola Davis wasn't interested in actually telling the truth. And so Dolly is very much like, yeah, my daddy could drink, but, you know, he hits you because he loves you. Well, do you know whose story it's almost exactly the same as? Who? Chania. Yes. But it is true. Like she had her mom and her dad and her mom was always home and she would get sick and her dad had a drinking problem. And sure, you had to go out and get your own switch to get hit. But. It was just because you knew how much they would miss you if something bad happened to you. And I wouldn't call it beating. It was just making you remember the consequences sooner. And it was like, okay. Someone else might have called it beating. And it reminds me a lot of Shania because Dolly was kind of a child star. She was young with brimming talent and she was excited to get on stage and show it. And so she was trying to see and be seen from a very young age. And so it was that sort of like shoving a 10-year-old on a train to nowhere by herself, kind of hoping things work out. And like she was on TV and on the radio from about age 10 years old because she had an uncle in Nashville who was really excited about her dreams and wanted to make it work and like play guitar with her and help get her introduced to people. But other than that, she was just kind of in this shed in the mountains and she and all her siblings would just beat the shit out of each other. Yeah, it's an interesting way of telling a tale that feels very old timey. And like, I don't think you would even put this book out now. It's a lot of like, a funny story happened one time. I got down there with the piglets and started sucking on the nipple of a mama pig. And my mom had to get me out of there. It's a lot of cute little stories that exactly your grandparents would tell you when you were younger. And then you would grow up later and be like, wait, grandma got married at 13. Do you know what I mean? There's very little emotional analysis or looking at like who made you how you are, why you are the way you are. It's all cute stories. A couple of stories of getting like really hurt. A lot of people got hurt out there. One time she got lost in the woods at night and then she found a cow that she knew and she knew the cow was going to run back to their home. So she hung onto the cow and it like shredded her body as she dragged along the ground clinging to the cow's neck. There's another one where she almost gets her toes fully chopped off because she steps on glass because they just didn't wear shoes for the whole summer every year. Like they had a ceremonial like school years over shoes are off until next school year starts moment. And she's like having fun with it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is really gnarly, though. Yeah, she talks about trying to dig a hole to China. And she goes, I believe that philosophy has made me what I am today. It's not just about survival, but about trying every day, literally every minute to make things a little bit better. The whole family might work for days to clear trees or move rocks or whatever it took to scratch out enough farmland to plant one extra row of corn. But from that day on, the Partons would be one row of corn richer. Yes, I said richer, for riches are in the mind and the spirit of the one eating the corn. When you think about it, gold has no real value at all. Shiva says, like, it made me creative. We used newspaper as wallpaper because we had no insulation and it was freezing in the winters. But that just gave me something fun to read. And when we would move into a new house, there would be new newspaper on the wall and we'd have all these news stories. Yeah. In the midst of the direst poverty and despair, the human spirit, especially that of children, will find some hope to cling to, some promise of a better day. It's very uplifting. 
Millions of Americans experience thinning hair. It's not only common, but it is completely normal. But among women, people never really talk about it. I had no idea how much my hair was falling out until I dyed it red and I can see exactly how much hair has come out of my head since May. It's a bit more than I thought. Now you can join me in joining the thousands of women that are doing something about it with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve visible thickness and strength. From postpartum to menopause and no matter your life stage, Nutrafol has four unique formulas to support women. Each is physician formulated using drug-free science-backed ingredients so you can get the most reliable results. What you're going to do is go to Nutrafol.com and take the hair health wellness quiz, identify the cause of your thinning hair, and Nutrafol will give you a personalized plan for better hair growth through a whole body health approach. They support healthy hair growth from within by targeting the root cause of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplements for six months. And as I am getting close to my six month, I can tell you my hair is so much thicker. I feel like I've been spending a good chunk of money on my hair. I've been dyeing it. I've been straightening it. And it was a little bit mad at me until I started giving it supplements, the supplements that it deserves. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code WORM. Find out why over 4,000 healthcare professionals recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code WORM. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code WORM. She talks about her mom and how hard her mom worked. I mean, with 12 kids, by the time you're 35 and no money in a one-room house, even when a day's work was over for us kids, it wasn't over for mom. In fact, it was never over until she went to bed. So stuff like that where I'm like, I don't know. I wonder if it was like a cute, fun little life for her. And her mom would sit there and hand sew so much of their clothing. She would take every scrap in town and turn it into quilts and jackets. When she was in middle school, although I was too young to understand a lot of what was going on at the time, I now know that mama had a lot of health problems, which I'm sure were not made any easier by having a baby every nine months. She and daddy had other problems too, as all couples do. Sometimes he'd be gone for days at a time. Sometimes mama would get to telling a story or singing a sad song and she'd start to cry. Then we'd all cry. That's what being a family is all about, sharing good times, misery, boredom, whatever. Those things brought us all closer. It's very common-esque in the way that it's like, that's horrible. But the way that it's like, isn't that cute? We were all stuck in that room together. So we would all just like cry it out as a family. That's love. Yeesh. At one point, she finds a diaphragm in her mom's bed. And looking back on it, she's like, what could she possibly have been using that for? And I also wonder that question. <laughs> she tells some funny stories about having to brush her grandma's false teeth and putting them in and chomping all over the house. She says, the quest for beauty had always been a struggle for me. I can't remember anybody ever saying that I was one of the more beautiful children they'd ever seen. I was pale, skinny little thing with corn teeth and hair that was fine and close to my head. And then there was those hated freckles. So she starts creating all this makeshift makeup. She pats flour all over her face to cover her freckles. She puts berries on her lips and kind of refines a way to make it not look like she just ate a mouthful of berries. She says that all of her other sisters were very pretty and she felt like she didn't fit in. But I can't ever tell what was a central part of her identity. Like, did she feel like the ugly duckling or is she just being like cute Dolly Parton being like, well, people wondered who my parents were because I was so different than the rest. You know what I mean? Like, 
it's hard to tell what's a character and then who she is. You don't get any sense of like what created the woman who drove to be like one of the most successful women of all time. Yeah, it feels backdated, not explaining the core and then bouncing off from there. It feels like, oh, you know me as this beauty queen. So here are like other moments where I can see little seedlings of that. She talks about always feeling extremely sexual from a young age. She says from the beginning, she just liked being a sexy girl. In high school, she loved to like perk up her tits and wear revealing little outfits. And it just felt good for her to be sexy. There were a lot of rumors in town about her, but a couple of times it got to her. But for the most part, she didn't really care. She just liked feeling sexy. Yeah. Her mom got spinal meningitis at one point and was in a coma. And the doctor said her fever was so high that she literally wouldn't be able to survive it. And if she did, she'd probably be brain dead. And then she came back and was fine after a couple of months of resting. And they called it a miracle. And then her mother was pregnant. And I guess because there were so many kids, there was kind of an understanding that the older ones would take care of the little ones. And one of the babies she was pregnant with didn't make it. And that baby was considered like Dolly's baby. It was understood that Dolly would be the one to raise that baby. And these are just kind of told as stories of like, ah, that's life and death on the farm. Like, that's what it is growing up in the mountains. And I'm like, Okay, maybe even if it can still be painful, but nothing's given more than a couple paragraphs. Another really important moment is that they have this neighbor that everyone spreads a lot of rumors about. He's a really scary looking old guy that everyone is afraid of. And there are these two women that come to live with him and then they disappear randomly. And so it's just assumed in town that he murdered them. And it's like, you know, whether or not he ate them is the big question. But one day she walks by his house and she hears a banjo and she's like, what is this beautiful banjo noise? So she gets to know him. He teaches her how to play the banjo. And she's like, oh, it taught me a lesson about being different. Like, it's okay to look different and be different because music is really good. I will say those two women that disappeared were his like mail order bride and her daughter. (laughs) Yeah, I do wonder what happened to them. I guess like early stage 90 Day Fiance where they like got brought to America and they were like, oh my God, living here sucks. She says, all my life, at least from the time I've been able to grasp more of my life than my own toes in my crib, I've been driven by three things. Three mysteries I want to know more about. Three passions. They are God, music, and sex. So then she talks about finding God. She was raised going to church every week. You know, I think as all little kids, it's just something that you're fed. You're not really considering the deeper meaning behind it or your particular relationship. Her dad refused to go to church, but her mom's dad was a pastor. So there was like a lot of God around and different relationships to him. And then one day she's in the church. She's like in this attic area where she gets horny for the first time and then also finds this old piano. And I thought she was going to start playing the piano, but she actually takes the strings off the piano and makes a makeshift mandolin and starts plucking out little notes. And she sings her first song. And after like playing her first song on that banjo in the church, God talks to her. I had found the real truth. I had come to know that it was all right for me to be a sexual being. I knew that was one of the things God meant for me to be. I also knew that my dreams of making music, traveling outside the Smokies, and pursuing a greater purpose were not silly childhood ideas, but grand real schemes ordained and consecrated by my newfound heavenly father. I was validated. I was sanctified. I was truly reborn. I was happy. She becomes one with God and understands her life's purpose and feels secure in herself because she thinks, you know, if this isn't who I am, then why would I have been made this way? She also thanks God for her big old titties. Yeah. She also always says that like since she was born, she's always been able to rhyme words, catch on to anything. She loved rhythm. She could hear the rhythm of like birds singing. She just was always very musically drawn and she came from a musical family, but she's like, I do believe that God gave me this talent and it is my purpose on this earth to use it. 
And so she was always singing and putting on shows and trying to make herself known as a little singer. From the time I knew sex existed, I wanted to know everything there was to know about it, and I wasn't shy about asking. We had aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends who were a few years older and had been out in the world a little bit. They would tell us anything we wanted to know. As the saying goes, that's the great thing about a sense of humor and a sex drive. You can't wait to share it with everybody else. So she had an uncle, Louie, who finally began to see that I was really serious about wanting to learn, so he taught me guitar. He gave me an old Martin guitar, and I learned the basic chords pretty quick. So she starts to play it out, and her and her sisters start, like, singing in churches around town. That becomes their thing. She sings at all the churches. They're little. It's cute. At one point, they're singing in a church, and the pastor brings out a live snake, and their dad storms in and sees how close the snake is to them and what's going on, and he just, like, grabs them and drags them out, and he's like, fuck this. This is tomfoolery. And then he says, goddamn, I can't believe I said goddamn in church. I guess she has a ton of uncles. It's crazy because when I think of an uncle, I'm thinking of like an old man. But I guess back in the day, if your mom had you at 15, it's very possible that you were 12 and your uncle was 20, right? Yeah. And I mean, also, even if your uncle was the same age as your mom, if you're 15 and your mom is 30 and your uncle is also 30, we're 30. So her uncle, Bill, is interested in a music career, and he also knows about Dolly's interest in a music career. So she's able to go stay with him, and he helps her get her foot in the music industry. And at that time, there was this guy called Cass Walker, and he had a radio program. And so he introduced them, and then she was like, I want to sing on your show. And he was like, okay. And she just auditioned and got it and started going into town to sing on his show whenever she had breaks from school or whenever she was able to get into town. A lot of things to me sound like a huge break, but all of these were just things that I think if you asked, you could do and no one really cared about for a really long time. Yeah, but then she also talks about when she goes to Nashville and like everybody's passing out their tape and everybody like people are sleeping in their car. Like I think everybody's always had the dream. It was definitely easier back then than now if you got to town to try to make it big. But I do think that there's always been competition and stuff. Well, that's what I mean is I think that like there was so much competition and I would have thought looking at this, be like, oh, well, she's been singing on live TV and radio since she was 11 years old. So when she gets to Nashville, wouldn't she have more of a foot in the door? And she didn't. So she's singing for this man who owns a grocery store in town. And because of that, he's like a millionaire. And because he's a millionaire, he just buys time on the radio. So he has her as his like little songstress. It's like the cute little girl who sings all the time. And he takes her on tour. Yeah. She sings live for the first time in her life. And I think it's like for 60 people. And she goes out. She gets so nervous and she does it. And then they all start cheering for her and saying, yes, yes, Dolly, we love you. We love your singing. We love you. At that very moment, I fell in love with the public. This is what I'd always wanted. No needed. It was the attention I had longed for. I knew that they were giving me. Now I had confidence in what I had to give them. They shouted for an encore. I don't have one. I didn't have one. I only had prepared one song. So at this tour, they're singing at county fairs and events. And there's this thing called the greasy pole where they just grease a pole and anyone who can get to the top of it gets the prize, which is $250. And she rolls herself in dirt to counteract the slipperiness and she wins. And then people are like, well, she's part of the show. So this was rigged. And he was like, how could it be rigged? It's literally just a greasy pole. If you get to the top of it, you win. So she has $250, which is to her family, all of the money. And she decides to use it to buy her family a television and they end up having to sell it because the entire neighborhood gets too addicted to TV. Everyone gathers at their house to watch TV every single week. And she was like, my dad was so mad that people wouldn't leave his house because we had a TV that we had to sell it. And so then by the time she made her television debut, her family did not have a TV anymore. I was a feisty kid. I don't know who coined the phrase, but it used to be said of me that I was smart enough to know everything and dumb enough to say it. That is one description that I have never attempted to dispute. 
She also says it got harder and harder to go to school after I became locally famous. There were those who resented me, and they weren't all subtle about showing it. One day, some of the more hateful ones locked me in a cloakroom. So because of her radio experience, she gets an opportunity to do a record in Louisiana. So she and her grandma take a bus all the way out to Louisiana. They get kind of lost along the way. That's a whole other story. And they get there, they cut a record. It gets a tiny bit of radio play, but it's not very much of anything. Yeah, and at this point, she's 12 years old. Yes. My little record got some radio play, and I kept on singing on the Cass Walker show. During summer vacation and any other time I was out of school for a few days, I would go to Knoxville to live with my Aunt Estelle and my Uncle Dot Watson. This way, I could do both the TV and radio shows. And she would, like, play outside with her guitar, and she hated begging. She's a lot of pride, and she has a lot of ego. And she's like, I hated begging, and I knew my dad would be mad, but I really wanted a hamburger. And she had almost no money. So, you know what I mean? She had to sing for her dinner. Soon, Uncle Bill decided I should go to Nashville. After all, that's where the real business was, and he had high hopes for me. So they bought some old car, and they would drive up there, and they would just, like, sleep in the car. And he would go into bars and just be like, you got to hear this little girl I've got in the trunk. (laughs) Eventually, they keep trying to get her on the Grand Ole Opry, which you guys know about. If you've seen Nashville, you know it's a really big deal. And she wants to get on the show. She kind of asks to do it. And they're like, yeah, sure. And then one of her friends from just like making the rounds, someone she knows from her radio performances is like, hey, you can have my spot this week. To me, that seems insanely generous. I guess if you were doing it every week, maybe you didn't care. These are old guys. So she does his spot and she makes her debut on the Grand Ole Opry. And there's a standing ovation. People lose their minds. They can't believe how great she is. It's a real shining moment for her. That performance did a lot for my confidence. I remember walking up to Uncle Bill's old car the night after the show, still flying treetop high. I said, well, Uncle Bill, I'm pretty good, ain't I? She talks more about driving around with Uncle Bill. Bill would sleep in the front seat and I would sleep in the back. Once we finally got to sleep, that is. Many nights we would sit up writing songs, working on arrangements, or just dreaming about the big times to come until almost daylight. There's a healthy amount of dreaming that has to be done for any project to really be worthwhile. All the doors have to be knocked on. Some have to be slammed in your face. All of those tapes have to be sent in. Many will end up in the trash without ever having been heard. It's all part of the process. And she says that this is good. She's like, listen, there has to be a way to separate the wheat from the chaff. If you really want it, you'll stick it out. And they have to figure out who actually wants it. That's the thing is I don't disagree with her. I think in modern day entertainment industry, now the gatekeeper is almost just longevity. Like you kind of have to get yourself there and prove that you can stay instead of getting there and prove that you deserve to get in. They sang for another record label. Bill had met a guy at a record label who was like, yeah, yeah, come by my office without earnestness. And so Bill was like, we'll be at your office. So they went and sat there all day. Every time the guy would come by, every time he would walk through reception, he would be like, why are they still here? Get rid of them. And they just would not leave. Finally, they get into his office. Dolly gets the opportunity to sing. She whips out a guitar and sings as hard as she can. And he's like, actually, that was very good. So she gets an offer with Buddy Killen and Tree Publishing. But I think that that deal kind of dismantles before anything ever happens. So every year she's going back home for the school year and she's the first person in her whole family to graduate from high school on either side. And that's of huge importance to her. She wasn't good at school, but she's like, because I had known so early what I wanted to do with my life that I couldn't see the importance of learning geography or plain geometry. And she also says I was not well liked in school. In fact, I was actively disliked by many, especially the other girls. I like to dress flashy and had an unearned reputation for being a tramp. She has one good friend, Judy, who's still her close friend. Judy is her numero uno ride or die through life. Everyone else, it seems like, was just mean to her. They spread a lot of rumors about her. Her younger sister, Rachel, who was born when she was 14 years old, everyone in town thought Rachel was Dolly's secret baby. And she's like, I don't know. At this point, maybe Rachel is my baby. I have no fucking clue. 
There are still those who think that Rachel is my child. Sometimes I think even Rachel. The father is very Dan Schneidery. The accusation is that the father is this man, curly-haired Dan, from the Cass Walker show, which is the grocery store show that she was on. And it's just because Rachel also has curly hair. Yeah, she denies it. So if you guys were wondering about that rumor, <laughs> realizing it now, though, those are pretty intense implications. Yeah. Implications that a grown man got a little girl pregnant. I mean, there are a lot of rumors that she addresses in this book that aren't even just like rumors of her being slutty. They're rumors of her being fully assaulted. I will say that this book does have a nothing bad ever happened to me. Like we may have gotten into trouble and we might have gotten a little hungry, but we always patted ourselves off and got back on the horse. And I do wonder if it was that easy. Do you know what I mean? There is definitely like a, if something bad happened, I'm not telling you. Listen, I really like Dolly Parton and I don't think that there's any reason to like say bad things about her, but I think there is also like space in anyone in pop culture to critique. This is a woman with a theme park and this book is an extension of her theme park. She is giving us the Dolly experience. She's not hoping that we feel something. Oh, yeah. It's definitely the Dolly experience. And I mean, it was written so long ago. It was written almost 30 years ago. And I think it was before we expected the authentic, unfiltered access to celebrities that we get now. And that's actually something she says at the end of the book. She's quite resentful of this idea that we should get to know everything about them. But it is ironic that you would write a book at all. And it's very much like recontrolling the narrative as opposed to like sharing yourself. Yeah, I do think that there is like a certain irony in being like, I resent the access to me, but also being like, and here's my theme park and here's my wig line and here's my book and here's how I do my nails and here's this and here's, you know what I mean? There's like a lot that she will sell. I guess like, why not though? It's she like created a brand and sold it. I do think the boundary has become very blurred in today's time with the use of social media and stuff. I don't think it was crazy for her to back then be like, I'm an entertainer and that entertainer has a brand. Like we don't expect to know who the CEO of The Gap is fucking. Just be like, well, then why would you expect me to wear your sweatshirt? (laughs) And you're not going to tell me about your divorce? (laughs) Today's episode is sponsored by PayPal Honey, the easy way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. With prices going up everywhere, finding a deal feels like my own personal victory. But sometimes they are sneaky. Sometimes it's hard to find what's on sale, where the coupon codes are. And with Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is a free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Imagine you are shopping on one of your favorite websites and when you check out, the Honey button appears and all you have to do is click apply coupons. Wait a few seconds as Honey just dives through the entire internet in honestly seconds. It searches for coupons and it tries applying them to your cart. And when it finds one that works, baby, that discount sticks. I have been shopping like crazy for wedding dresses. They are not a cheap purchase. I know that I have some things I can rewear, but I have four weddings coming up in the next month and I wanted something new to wear to a couple of these weddings. And there is a dress that I got for Claire's wedding. Don't tell her, but it was marked down thanks to a coupon code from Honey from $400 to $138. I feel like I should treat myself to dinner or something. I should treat Honey to dinner. I don't even know, but having to buy this many nice dresses. It is so helpful to have a little bird in my computer telling me where the best deals are. Honey doesn't just work on desktop. It works on your iPhone too. Activate it on Safari, on your phone, and save on the go. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. By getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this show. Get PayPal Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash worm. That's joinhoney.com slash worm. Let me know what you buy. She talks about when she was with her uncle and they were like sleeping in their car on the summers to try to figure out a way to make it big. 
And she's like, that's why I don't blame him at all for that time he stood in front of a bus and got hit by it so he could win the lawsuit money and eat. And it's told like, isn't that crazy? Like it's the way that me and Ashley talk about running around to a lot of open mics that were like flooded. And it's silly and it's fun and it's like the good old days. But I'm like, no, no, no. If you are a 14-year-old girl living in a car with your uncle and you watch him walk in front of a bus so that you guys can get hamburgers tomorrow, like that is something that you should probably look at deeper. Yeah. I mean, I think that things like that contributed to a mental breakdown that she has later that she won't call a mental breakdown. But all of it, even just the idea of being like one of 12 kids to sit there and be like, the first time the crowd shared for me, I loved it. And that's what I knew I had wanted my whole life. I wanted the attention. And it's like, what do you think made you want attention that bad? Yeah. So she graduates high school and she moves right out to Nashville. She has very little money and she's doing her rounds. She's babysitting to make a couple extra bucks. She's knocking on doors, passing out her tape. She's doing laundry one day and a man drives by and flirts with her and she flirts back and he comes into the laundromat and they get married. That's how she meets Carl Dean, the handsome, sexy Carl Dean. Their relationship is something I would like to examine as we move further through this book. I think it's very cool that he's not front and center in her story. Her brand and her image is so tightly controlled. And she is such a PR genius. She created an icon of herself from the beginning. Like she knew, I want high hair, big boobs, sequins. Like she was pithy. She was quick. She's always been Dolly Parton from the beginning, which I really admire. And I think the only places that her armor is cracked is when she talks about her husband and when she talks about her best friend. Like they're the only two places where what she is saying is not contributing to the branding in the way that she thinks it is and the way that everything else does. It's the only place where I'm like, Oh, you do not know what it sounds like you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. So she's talking about the courtship between her and Carl Dean. It was very confusing. She wasn't even sure if he even liked her. And then he was like, you know I love you. And she was like, oh, yeah, okay, I do. She's continuing to sing on shows. She gets taken out to Chicago to do American Bandstand. She's chipping away the industry. She's becoming more known around town. She's getting ready to record another album. And Carl wants to marry her. And her record label executive is like, being married is a bad look for you. So she just gets married in secret. And then a year later, her record label exec is like, I think your career is going well enough that you could get married now. And she's like, oh, I did. On Memorial Day, May 30th, 1966, Carl and I had a sweet little wedding service with mom and the preacher's wife as witnesses. Here I was trying to get married to a man who hadn't really asked me with a boss that didn't really want me to in a town that wouldn't let me do it when I wanted. So she starts talking about Carl Dean. And one of his big things is that he's not a man of many words. She's like, He never even said he loved me before he asked me to marry him. And he didn't even ask me to marry him. He just was like, either you have to move from this part of town or we should get married. It's very Harry and Meghan. A lot of things are left unsaid. She claims that he shows that he loves her through his actions, but also he's not a romantic. I don't know. It's just like, I don't know what you're getting from them. She's like, we don't need to spend a lot of time together and he doesn't need to say anything. He's very sexy. She talks a lot about how handsome he is and everybody finds him so handsome. So the thing is, in this beginning part, a lot of these little uncertainties sounded actually very cute and romantic to me. Like I like the idea of being married to someone for decades and still learning new things about them. It's wonderful to have the feeling of comfort and security that comes with believing you completely know a person inside and out. But it's also exciting to know that in the back of your mind, you actually don't. I guess I'll always keep learning about Carl, but it seems only fair that I make an effort to bring you up to speed. Yeah, I feel like she gives me like, but I don't know anything about him in every single day. Like, I don't know that after 30 years, you should be learning something new every day. <laughs> they don't see each other every day. She's learning something new once a month. Once a month. 12 new things a year actually sounds quite romantic to me. <laughs> so then the other thing she says about him, that is like our little red flag is Carl's not easy to know. He has his favorites and it's not hard to tell who they are. 
He has favorites among my sisters and among my nieces and friends. He has other favorite women scattered in various places, whether at the girl at the bank, the insurance company, or whatever. He communicates well with women and he loves to brag on them, as long as it's okay with me, which it always is. He always checks women out, whether it's okay with me or not, and he only looks and talks. I believe with all my heart that I am the only woman Carl has ever been intimate with. They swing. I feel like they're Mormon soft swingers. I think he's gay. Oh, maybe. I 100% think he's gay because he is quiet. He's a mama's boy. He like loves to just like fiddle around with car parts, but then he also like loves to paint and do poetry. Something about this where it's like he loves women. He loves to brag on women. He knows how to communicate with women, but he would never have sex with them. I'm like, okay, think of a type of man who can get along well socially with women, but has no interest in having sex with them. (laughs) He's very much a loner. And of course, that suits my lifestyle perfectly. She talks about how he went to an event with her early in her career when they first got together and he had to wear a tux and he hated the experience. I'll support you in your career in any way that I can. I know it's a big part of you and you wouldn't be the same person if you didn't do it, but the limelight's just not for me. I'll be there at home waiting for you, but I'm not going to any more of these wingdings. He has been a wingdingless man ever since. On one hand, I think it's very cool that she has her home life and she's able to keep her home life completely separate because Hollywood will swallow you if you let it become your entire existence. But on the other hand, I think if you're working so hard to have certain accomplishments, I don't know, like if you won an Oscar, even though you keep Mac quite private, don't you think you'd want him by your side? Yes. I don't think that they have a traditional romantic relationship, even taking into consideration the privacy. Yeah. I think that they are like lifelong partners. But then down the road, when she's talking about him, something she keeps bringing up is that he is not somebody that she would ever bring her problems to. That right. it like stresses him out when she gets sick and has problems. So she doesn't like to burden him with anything going on, either physically, mentally. Yeah. She's like, he's not somebody I can open up to. So I'm like, what is his purpose then? Okay, so she's around town writing songs and selling a lot of songs for other people. She submitted a couple songs to the show called The Porter Wagner Show, which is a huge deal. Everyone watches The Porter Wagner Show, and he has this sidekick called Norma Jean, who is his girl singer for duets. One day, she walks into her record label office, and she has a message from Porter Wagner to come in for a meeting, and she assumes it's to sell another song. So if you grew up with Dolly Parton, you know that things ended pretty badly between them. It reminded me a lot of Joan Rivers and Carson. Yeah, Johnny Carson. And it was an almost identical situation where he's like, I created you and I'm happy to like let you be a star under my tutelage, but don't you dare go out without me. I will try to ruin you. Yeah. So she goes in for this meeting and he says, Norma Jean is moving to Oklahoma to become a wife and I want you to be my new girl singer. And this is her big break, but it's not her only break. As we know, in Hollywood, it takes a series of breaks to become something. And this is a huge step up, but it's not the only step she's had so far. And this is, I do think, a really important thing. She's done American Bandstand in Chicago. She's sold songs. She's recorded records already. So she goes and joins the Porter Wagner Show for a five-year contract. She's making 60 k a year, which is huge money to her. I don't know what he's making. Right. Any relationship is like a house with an upstairs. It's got two stories. I know that everybody who knows anything about me and Porter would like to know the true story of what happened to us. Nobody would like to know that any more than Porter Wagner and me. I could badmouth and say all manner of bad things about Porter as he has about me throughout the years. I choose instead to tell it from my own standpoint and try to see it through the spiritual rather than the natural eye. I truly believe that all things and all people are brought into our lives for a good reason. No matter how hard things may be or appear to be at the time, God never gives us more than we can handle. That which does not kill us makes us stronger, as they say. So she did get a lot of experience traveling with Porter Wagner, doing live television, 
singing, writing. There was a lot that she got out of the show. They had major hits together. But it was one of those things where even the good things that she got were under his discretion. Like he forced her to join his record label. There was no question about it. So she ends up burning a huge bridge with her old record label. And I think, again, this is very much her way of like giving you something that's been sanded down to nothing. Two examples she gives of the way that he, even when being nice, was being mean is like once she went fishing and caught a three pound fish she was proud of and he offered to have it hung for her on a plaque. And when she got the plaque back, it was a different fish and a fish that was way bigger that he thought she'd be more proud of. And she was like, the point isn't having the biggest fish on a plaque. The point is having my fish on a plaque. And she's like, it was always little stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, but no, that's not what it's about. I mean, like, obviously it's about the fact that he did not want her to grow without him, that she got sick of it, that there's a lot of creative control differences. And she finally said, I don't need to be underneath someone. But the way that she like hands off these pretty petty little stories and that's not why you leave a good gig. Yeah. I mean, it seems like their relationship was deeply tumultuous, not classically petty. Yeah. So she signs on for a five-year contract. She does two additional years and she says that she's pretty sure Porter would have been glad she left too because it didn't mean like hollering at each other anymore. And I'm like, okay, talk to me about this hollering. Time went by and I wrote more and more songs and dreamed bigger and bigger dreams. Porter became very competitive and possessive and very intimidated. I'm not sure Porter realizes what a serious person I would turn out to be. Maybe I'm flattering myself here too. I know he had no idea how stubborn and strong-willed I was. Nothing and nobody has ever been able to stand in the way of me and my dreams. We certainly were not shy about turning our demons loose on each other at any given moment. It was not uncommon for us to argue and holler loud enough to be heard a block away or at the back of the bus. She has this one weird passage where she goes, I had already stayed two years longer than the five I had planned. Looking back, it seems appropriate. After all, the indentured servants came to the new world and had to work seven years for their freedom. Seven years is traditional. Jacob worked seven years for the right to marry Rachel. I'm like, okay, you weren't an indentured servant. Making $60,000 a year to sing on television in, what is this, the 60s? I mean, you're not an indentured servant. You're in a contract you don't want to be in. Apparently, Porter wrote a memoir that came out two years before this memoir. I wonder if this was a direct retaliation to that. Maybe. That's one thing. And the fact that it seems like she had a resurgence right around this time. I don't know what was pushed for this memoir to come out when it did. She's like, I was never going to tell you guys what actually happened. But then he wrote all the numbers in his memoir. So why not? So she's like, I left him. And like, literally the day the contract was up, I got in a cab. I left. End of story. Until a few years later when he sued her. And she goes, I would have never told you how much he sued me for, except for that he told you already. So I'll say my side. He sued her for $3 million and a portion of all of her earnings for the rest of her life. He said because he made her a star, she owes her career to him. Insane. They end up settling out of court for $1 million she has to pay him. And she does. And she's like, I did not have it at the time. I should have just filed for bankruptcy and defaulted on it. But we scrounged up a million dollars. But like over, over, over time. I have always been a person who paid her debts. Even if I didn't feel it was justified, our settlement was binding and legal. And that to me made it almost sacred. My ego and self-respect also came into play. If I was going to prove I could be a star on my own, my pride wouldn't let me admit how crushing a blow this was. I paid the debt. It took everything I had, everything Carl had, everything I could make for years to come, but I paid it. I made up my mind that if he could live with it, I could live without it. I've done all right without it. I suppose Porter has done all right with it. I am neither his conscious nor his accountant. So she goes for a meeting with RCA to say like, well, now that I'm not with Porter, do you still want me? And they were like, yes, of course we do. Well, not only that, they're like, we would rather have you than him. Yes. (laughs) So she's like, okay, I can make it on my own because the record label says so. She ends the drama with Porter by saying, 
Porter and I have outlived a lot of the hurt and bitterness we both felt and can once again share a stage from time to time when we work together. There is no question he did a great deal for me and for country music. So thank you, Porter Wagner, for all the good that you have brought to me and forgive me for the bad as I have forgiven you. It's like the old saying, as good as you are and as bad as I am, I'm as good as you are and as bad as I am. It doesn't sound like he lived through the bitterness and it hurt. It sounds like he talked shit about you in his memoir two years ago, like 30 years after the fact. I think you're right that this is a response to his memoir two years ago and her laying St. Dolly on thick. I also do think back in the day, nobody gave women any credit. So if a man came out and was like, can you believe this bitch that I gave a job thought she could get a different job? I mean, she has some really interesting lines later in the book about what it's like to be a woman in the entertainment industry that I really like. And I do think that he just couldn't believe that this woman that he gave a job got a different job. More than couldn't believe, like... Was angry, furious. And I think that right now she's like laying St. Dolly on thick. But it's also looking back on their careers, I think it's very easy for her to be like, hey, buddy, it all worked out. Thank God she gave him a million and not a percent of the rest of her earnings because... A million was nothing in the grand scheme of it all. A million was nothing in the grand scheme of it all. And so if you have lapped somebody this fucking hard 100 times over, I don't think it's that hard to be like, and I forgive you. I heard you said some mean things about me, but I can't hear it from on top of my piles of money. I was at the top of the roller coaster at the theme park named after me. And so I couldn't quite catch what you were saying. Yeah. I think another one of the things that makes this book kind of a slog and not that interesting is she talks a lot about like her business managers and her team, which it's not interesting to be like, and then this manager got me this deal, but I had to move on to this writing partner. And you're just like, okay. The thing is, I think that one of the insecurities that you can catch with her is the thing that Porter Wagner instilled in her, which is people thinking she's not grateful enough. Like, I think a big theme of this book is her proving her gratitude And like talking about her manager and talking about her family and talking about the first record label that she ended up having to kind of screw over because of Porter Wagner and the second record label that took a chance on her. And she has to tell you how grateful she is for everything because I think it's a big fear that someone's going to turn around and be like, I helped you with this and you didn't say shit about me. My interpretation of it was back in the day, there just was a lower bar for what people were looking for and she just didn't try that hard. Yeah. I also think you were speculating earlier when we were talking that things are currently a lot worse with her family than she would let on. And so these people kind of are her family. I believe that, but it's not that interesting. I agree. And I think you look at someone like Paris Hilton, who did a really good job of giving you the narrative that she knew would be interesting to read. And the truth is, Of course, your manager is going to be the person you talk to every day. That's your colleague. If you were to tell the story of your life, would you talk about the coworker who you went in and saw every day? No, because it's not that interesting. (laughs) I don't know. I think you would be in my memoir a lot. I meant... I know, I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) To find out that I'm not in your memoir. Oh my God, this is crushing. (laughs) You're just a colleague to me. (laughs) I guess I feel about this book the same way I felt about Betty White, which is... I respect you. I appreciate you, but I'm not that interested in this book. Yeah, and like there doesn't feel like much of a desire from their end to write an interesting book. Yeah. Like they're going to tell it as they want to tell it. So Dolly sets out on her own as an independent artist on RCA Records. Her first record out on her own is an absolute hit. The world celebrates her. Everyone's excited. She's taken the world by storm. She talks about her friend Chet Atkins. She loves pranks, and I don't even understand any of them. She's always like, I love a good prank, like mooning people. I'm like, okay, good prank. But this is a prank she loves. Chet is very ticklish, and I always grab every opportunity to grab him in a sensitive spot or gouge him in the ribs. As this book is being written, 
We are carrying on a fun joke through the mail. He is suing me for the last time I grabbed his butt. He goes to a lot of trouble to make it look all official and legal, so I do the same thing back. In my last brief, I commented that his suit for sexual harassment should actually be his assment. Okay, I guess it's just a joke. But I am like, I actually wouldn't put it past Dolly for her and a friend to just sue each other as a bit. Yeah, I guess if you've got lawyers on retainer, it's like, let's give them a Sudoku. Anyway, she has her own TV show. It doesn't go anywhere. She has a hard time making TV work. I think she's still trying. She also tries to make a band with her family. And this is what we were talking about where like, I think there's a lot of there there, but she won't give it to you. The unfortunate part was that I took on the mother role. They played and sang fine, but I stayed in constant frenzy trying to keep up with my brood. What time did Randy get to bed last night? Whose room was that Rachel was going into? Are Frida and Floyd drinking in the back of the bus? It just got ridiculous. I don't mean to take anything away from any of my family. They're all talented and I love them very dearly. They are not at fault for what happened. I made a huge mistake. Here I was trying to listen to another voice, trying to move in a new direction. And my falling back in my family was grounding me in my past. Their music is wonderful and pure and reflects the truest, deepest part of me. But I was hearing a different drummer. And then she's like, sorry to my family. I hope you guys are all successful still. And I'm like, okay, it ain't that easy. When you have a dirt poor family like that, when you've got 14 mouths to feed and you're the only one with money and you're trying to hire them into your business and it doesn't work and you have to disband because you can't watch over them and bad things are happening. Like these are kids that are drinking. When she's like, are they drinking the back of the bus? She's talking about like 12 year olds. And I think the way that she's just like, ah, family, it didn't work out anyway. Best of luck. Yeah. She's getting a lot of success. And even though it's like the TV show didn't work, the band didn't work out, she is like having hits and she is doing performances and she has a manager that she loves. And she has these huge shows. Some of them work, some of them don't. But she's also like traveling a lot. And she says that because Carl doesn't like to travel, she always travels alone with a man. And she talks about this like two-week trip in Paris she took with this guy she knew who had a fiancé. And she was like, the fiancé did not like that. But we had the most romantic time in Paris. And I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Then we went to bed together. She's like, we fell asleep in the same bed, but nothing could have happened. I mean, something could have happened. Friends are friends to me, male or female. If you're going to screw, you're going to screw. You're going to find your time to do what you want to do. Does that mean they fucked? I don't know. Like later, it gets very weird, her sexual relationship. And so one of the things she does is this huge Vegas review where she was going to make like many millions of dollars. And I guess the show was a bomb. And she says part of the problem was that it was like a glitzy show. And she's like, actually, I need a strip back show where I'm the star and not some over the top performance. And she also says the ill-fitting show could have been bad enough without the personal problems I was having at the time. I was very unhappy with my weight. I was experiencing female problems. I had trouble with my band, trouble with my family, and trouble with my voice. I was taking cortisone for the vocal nodes that had continued to plague me. That tended to make me puffy and bitchy. On top of that, I had been betrayed by certain people who were close to me. All of that was just too much. Tell me about it. There was a lot of things going on, and she never gets into it. She does, however, take this time to get into her best friend, Judy, her best friend of 40 years. And she starts this paragraph by going, one thing we've had to overcome is the constant rumor that Judy and I are lesbian lovers. It is understandable. Most people can't understand two women being so close and devoted to each other. And I was like, fair enough. Platonic friendship exists. Look at me and Ashley. She's my best friend. We hang out every day. We never touch. We never touch. And so I was like, I'm not going to accuse someone of being gay. And then (laughs) we keep learning about her and Judy. The fact that Judy is never married probably fans that flame. That's not to say that she hasn't been around. She hasn't been asked. She's broken a few good old boys' hearts by saying no. And I'm like, okay, so Judy's lifelong single woman who is your best friend, no problem. And then she goes, and I'm sure there's many a maid in many a hotel has wondered why Judy and I will leave a double room with only one bed slept in. Okay, she loves to share a bed with her man friends and her single woman friends and anybody who's around. If you went on a trip with Dolly Parton right now, you'd have to share a bed. Our relationship is wholesome, but exciting and fun. Thelma and Louise ain't got nothing on us. And then she tells us about a time they went to New York City together. And the first thing they were excited to do was go to a porn movie. 
And I was like, of course, you and your straight lifelong best friend who has no husband, who shares a bed with you, you guys love to watch porn together. <laughs> Why do people think you're gay? And then she says this. She talks about how ever since she was in middle school, she's always written songs with Judy. And Judy's really good about like when Dolly's in the mood, she'll start humming or picking out a song and writing lyrics. And the only person that can be with her is Judy because Judy will write down the lyrics as she goes. Or sometimes Dolly will be like, write down every word that rhymes with that so I can come up with the next line or whatever. Judy will get into my head waiting eagerly for whatever comes out next. She's like, I'll call Judy at 3 a.m. and she's over immediately. I tend to forget to eat and when I'm writing and Judy always keeps me from hurting myself. Just about the time my blood sugar gets low, she'll be there with a bowl of jello. Writing is an intensely personal thing, best done alone. Being with Judy is better. It's like being alone with somebody, if that makes any sense. The two of us will often go on what we call spiritual journeys to the mountains. Judy is very protective of me. My family is especially grateful for her devotion to me. Carl knows that when I'm with Judy, I'm well taken care of. Everybody thinks of her as part of the family. It sounds like being in love. Especially compared to how she talks about Carl. So later she talks about how after she made it big, she and Carl bought a big house and a lot of her family moved in with her for a long time. And at first I thought this was romantic. She says, they say love isn't about two people gazing into each other's eyes. It's about two people gazing outward in the same direction. It just sounds like a lot of her and Carl is just parallel, like never touching, never like really existing together. They're just like willing to move in the same direction, which maybe that is the version of love that she wants. Carl was good enough to let them all stay. I guess to be honest, I should say that he was good enough to let me stay after taking in so many kids. A lot of it sounds pretty unromantic. Judy still thinks Carl is a hot number. They have a mutual love and respect, although it's largely unspoken. They look out for each other in little ways. Of course. Carl's never said he loved anybody. The main reason the three of us have managed so well for so long is that we all respect each other's privacy. We all, they're in a throp. <laughs> it is a wonderful and necessary part of any relationship to know that you can depend on someone to be there. It's just as essential to know that at times you can depend on them not to be. What does that mean? I have never in my life been like the thing that makes me and Mac work that we respect each other's privacy. The thing that makes me and Ashley work, that we respect each other's privacy. And Mac and Ashley, they never ask about each other. <laughs> I mean, so she's talking about one time when her mom is like wearing this rabbit foot necklace that really bothers her. And Carl gets revenge by wearing a big cow skull necklace as a joke. Carl is always good about backing me up. But there was one time it came quite a surprise to me. That's about the necklace. I've never said a word to him about it either. That's just the way we are. We do these things for fun. Carl likes it better when nothing is said. Carl keeps a lot inside, but he's very opinionated. Can I say one more thing that she says about Judy? Yeah. She tells like a favorite memory and it's when she got everybody Vespas and they made motorcycle jackets for their like motorcycle gang. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, you're not gay friend Judy who is single, shares a bed with you, watches porn with you. When you're with her, it's like you're alone, but with someone. She comes to you in the middle of the night. She's protective of you. And you guys are all walking around in biker outfits. Yeah. You sound very straight. <laughs> It works out well between Carl and me. We both get what we want. We both have the freedom to come and do as we please. Carl doesn't really mind my being gone unless I'm gone for more than two weeks at a time. Two weeks is just about my limit as well. And after that, we both get a little nuts and a little testy. I don't know. I guess I think one of the things that's so romantic about settling down with someone for life is that you have foregone the freedom to come and go as you please. You're like accountable to another person. Okay, here's where it gets really weird. Carl has had various people and even family members approach him to say that I was having an affair with this person or that person. Carl would simply say, well, I would think less of any man that didn't fall in love with her. And he means it. He seems to have an understanding of how I am and how people are towards me. He seems to know that I'll be back and that love affairs and relationships are just part of my dealings with people. He knows that I will always come home. And as long as I live, we'll always be together. That's all that matters to him. And he's right. 
Okay, so you're out there fucking around. Is that what she's saying? Is she saying clear as day that she is in an open relationship that he's not in? Because she says, she goes, I'm sure that he's never been with another woman that's not me. Maybe they're both bi. And like, she's his girl wife. And then he has boy boyfriends. (laughs) Maybe. Because she says, sure, he flirts with a lot of women and gets along with them, but he's only been intimate with me. And then what do you mean that you've had a lot of love affairs and relationships? The other thing is I wonder if Carl could be asexual. Carl is not as affectionate as I am. He's not a big cuddler like me, so I force him to let me baby him and I make him baby me. He loves it eventually. She also says that he's not at all romantic. And she talks about like on Valentine's Day, he's so cheap. He's the kind of guy who will go to a drugstore on Valentine's Day and get two boxes of candy. He'll give one to me without a card and say, well, here. The other one, he'll put it in the freezer just in case he forgets for next year. I used to take it personally, but I don't anymore. He says the reason he thinks I'm pretty is because I'm just this much from being damn ugly, and he's not joking. He doesn't like perfect beauty as much as he likes flaws, scars, freckles, and crooked smiles. So Carl certainly got his blessing in me, and I know for certain that I've been blessed with him. Huh? So she says the biggest fight they've ever gotten into is when Carl found out that she was not a virgin when they met. This is the weirdest conversation I've ever seen in my life. Our relationship has not always been perfect. A year or so after we were married, Carl decided to ask me if he was the first man I'd ever been with. I'm not sure why he asked me at that particular point. I thought that maybe it was because I was getting so involved and actually enjoying sex so much, possibly Carl felt I knew more than I should. Maybe he figured I'd either been around, was getting around, or wanted to start getting around. Whatever the reason, I didn't understand why he was asking me then, but I didn't even think about lying because our relationship had been so good, open, and honest. So when Carl asked me if he was the first, I told him no, and it just about shattered him. But he got over the hurt and confusion and never mentioned it again. He became an even better husband and friend after that. In fact, he's been the best husband a girl could ever have. And then later she goes, it was still a painful experience. I often wonder what I would say to Carl if he asked me that same question today. What would I answer? If I knew then what I know now, I would probably have said yes. I don't think you should have to admit to things that you don't want to if it can cause you great trouble down the road. Even though that was a painful learning experience, it did inspire me to write the song called Just Because I'm a Woman. Okay, so in this situation, your husband asked you a question. You were honest with him. It hurt him, but you guys grew for the better. And you're like, if I learned anything, it's that I would have lied. That is such a crazy conclusion to come to. Also to be like, you shouldn't have to admit things that you don't want to. You guys got over it. What if he had found out you had lied? That's something that you can't get over, I think. Yeah, this is a really odd chapter. It's so weird to say the thing I've learned in 40 years of marriage is don't admit the truth if it's inconvenient. It feels like there's some sort of agreement in place here. This is not a traditional relationship. I'm very curious about it. Anyway, so they took in a lot of kids from her family. A lot of her siblings ended up having children that really looked up to them, that lived with them for a time. They called her Aunt Granny, and she loves it. Okay, so here's where it gets kind of confusing because she doesn't necessarily give years. It seems like she gets huge. And then I was doing a better job of playing Dolly Parton these days. I had new management, new producers, and I had found a brilliant new band leader in Greg Perry. And then she talks about how great Greg was and they became very close. Because they were so close and they were writing music together, Judy began to feel unnecessary and unwanted. I didn't mean for it to be that way, but I guess I had neglected my relationship with her somewhat. So she joins the army (laughs) and falls in love and leaves Dolly. Yes. Dolly also, we later find out, does not like this guy that Judy is with. But so this is when she gets nine to five. I guess she's at the top of her music career. And they're like, let's add one more thing. She didn't consider herself an actress. But Jane Fonda straight up comes to her and goes, I think I need you so we get the Southern views. And Dolly's like, I respect a businesswoman. And then, of course, she goes in. She writes nine to five. I think nine to five was not actually the huge hit. I think it like grew to icon status, but it wasn't like a huge financial hit right away. 
Yeah, and then they got sued because another person was like, I told Jane Fonda about this song of mine, and she stole it and gave it to you. And Dolly was like, no, she didn't. So they go to court, but that was really embarrassing for her. But she says it was one of the greatest experiences of her life because she had so much fun with the women. And she just every day went in and laughed. And they were all, of course, very different. But they, like, all really respected each other. And she loved to learn from them. And she talks about how everyone else would show up looking like shit at 4 a.m. because you have to get your hair and makeup done on set anyway, which, duh. And she never showed up not fully done to the nines. That is in part, I admit, out of vanity and in part because I feel that if you are a star, you owe it to your fans to look like one. I can remember being very disappointed at meeting celebrities I'd always admired and finding them to look like unmade beds. That is something that she does believe as like a moral high ground that looking good is a moral thing. I mean, she says you owe it to yourself to get plastic surgery. I do think it contributes to the rumors that a lot of people have that Dolly is like fully in disguise with like facial prosthetics and tattoos. She says that she jokes that if her house was on fire, she would be like, I'm not walking out of here until we've done my hair and makeup. I believe her. (laughs) Me too. She's like, I'd rather die than show my face in public looking ugly. So after the high high of nine to five and her career going so well and her life just being on a float, Judy has a boyfriend that is bad. All of her friends leave her. There's just a series of events that fall into place that send Dolly into a really dark time in her life. So she does this movie called The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas with Burt Reynolds. And she says that Burt was going through a divorce with Sally Field at the time, and he was not in a particularly good mood. On top of that, people were being fired left and right. In fact, at one point, there was a bumper sticker circulating around from Hollywood that read, Honk if you've been fired from Best Little Whorehouse. And then she says her and Burt became like BFFs in misery. Bert was in pretty bad shape, emotionally and physically. Sometimes he would just walk off set and unable to deal with things, and I would be called upon to go to his dressing room and try to cheer him up. That was a little like the blind leading the blind since I was in emotional and physical turmoil of my own. She tries to get her band leader, Greg Perry, a job on the movie, working with her on the soundtrack. And then they just fire the guy who's in charge of the score and the soundtrack. And they're like, okay, Greg's in. And she's like, okay, well, that's not what I meant. And then Greg hated the job so much that he retired from music altogether. And became a doctor. She's like, he wanted to become a doctor. I'm like, I don't know. I know people in med school and residency right now. I don't think that's something a 45-year-old man used to the cushy life of making music could handle. So she has lost Greg as her band manager and I think her friend. And she and Judy are not in a good place. Emotionally, my heart was bleeding. I was bleeding physically as well. I had to have a couple of DNCs to control hemorrhaging. I was all nerves. I even started to drink some to ease my pain. I finally asked my doctor to tie my tubes so that I could get off birth control pills. And she also didn't talk to Carl about the decision to tie her tubes, but she says neither of them ever really wanted children. I always felt guilty and selfish that I didn't want them, so sometimes I would just say I couldn't have them, and the lie made me feel even more guilty. The guilt added to the other pain I was going through in my mind, and it was almost as if I had an abortion, having my tubes tied and not even consulting Carl about it. I was also having problems concerning my family. Some of my family members wanted to be stars in their own right, and it felt like they resented me. I've always felt a certain amount of guilt connected to my success, and now it loomed larger than ever. I had to depend so much on Greg for support, and now he was not there. I had come to depend on Judy, and now she was completely caught up in her own heartache. I collapsed. It seemed that my support system had disappeared. The very foundation of all my beliefs had shaken. The dreamy little kid from the mountains had become a fat, disillusioned, hopeless woman. Carl, as always, was loyal to me, but he's not strong when it comes to my having problems. Huh? I had never, ever felt so completely by myself. And for the first time, I felt that being by myself didn't put me in such good company. I think that she is prone to depression. And I think that this was a depressive episode. 
I feel like it's hard to tell looking back when you're not in the middle of the storm, but I imagine there was a ton of bad press from the best little whorehouse. I think there was a lot of talk that her and Burt Reynolds were hooking up. He was very angry at her for not playing into the rumors. And then I think he started talking bad about her. She's not saying something. You don't get your band leader a job on a movie and then he quits the industry altogether. Like what happened there? She's like, oh, it was the politics. I'm like, the politics of what? I think things were falling apart left, right, and center. I think things were very bad. And then in the true style of this book, one night somehow I found peace in my sleep. And when I woke up, it looked like a regular day. The clouds that had been there mostly in my mind had cleared up. It had become apparent to me that life goes on whether you feel like being a part of it or not. I mean, right before this, she talks about contemplating suicide. So she was really in such a bad place. And then she's like, and then I was fine. I said to myself, get off your big fat ass and get on with your life. Suddenly it all made sense. The sin against the Holy Spirit was to sin against myself, against myself, my true personality. Here I'd been given a gift and I wasn't using it. I'd been greatly blessed and was angry because the blessings hadn't come without difficulty. To sin against the Holy Spirit was to sin against the Holy Self. So she finds God again. She realizes that she is a mouthpiece of God. I had made peace with God again, and now it was time for one of my earth angels to carry on the work of pulling me back together in a big way. Sandy Gallen came to my rescue like a knight in corduroy armor. So, you know, more about her pal Sandy. She loves to tell stories about her business associates. She laughs about this because Sandy was gay, and I guess when people saw her going to Australia, they were like, Dolly escapes with her mystery romance man. And she's like, we were not romantic. She also does a movie with Sylvester Stallone. It's called Rhinestone. It is very bad, but she has a lot of fun making it. She goes, I guess the public didn't want to see Sylvester Stallone do comedy, or maybe they didn't want to see me do Sylvester Stallone. One thing is certain, they didn't want to see Rhinestone. I mean, she talks about the music she made for Rhinestone. She says it was the best country music anybody never heard. She also had gained a lot of weight, which was something that she talks a lot about in this book. I just skipped over it because I found it to be very boring 90s stuff. But she's like, this movie helped me get back in shape. It felt like she was kind of coming out of her shell and living her life again. She's getting comfortable on camera. She tells this story about Sylvester Stallone where they're shooting in an alley, like a damp alley in New York City, which I will tell you does not ring true because I don't think we have those. But there's a homeless person in the alley on their set, I guess. And she is wearing a shawl as part of her costume. And she drapes over this unhoused person to keep them warm. And Sylvester Stallone walks up, jerks the shawl away and says, don't you put that good shawl over that scum? He could have made something of himself. We did. What? So she goes up to him, grabbed the shawl back from him, wrapped it back around the man. Then I stood up right in Sly's face and said, hey, look, that could have been you, you ungrateful son of a bitch, except that by the grace of God, who knows? It could be an angel sent to show you what an ass you really are. At least he's one of God's creatures, and that's enough for me. Yeesh. And then the next day, Sylvester Stallone like, saw the error of its ways, and now he's a great guy, and they're still friends. And I was like, that went low. Can you believe this man thought he should like kill a homeless person? But then after a good talking to, he saw the light, and now everything's great. She talks about the rise of the tabloids, and she finds out that her aunt that she honestly doesn't even know is spreading stories about her. She finds out that stories are coming from like a source within the Parton family, and it turns out it's this long-lost aunt that nobody even talks to. And she's like, it was funny, but also hurt my feelings. And then she goes on to talk about the rest of her family. I guess her sister, Willa Dean, wrote a book about her called Shadow of a Song, about what it's like to live in the shadow of Dolly Parton and her songs. I don't really know that much about this book. I honestly didn't look into it, but it feels scathing. And Dolly's just like, I'm proud of her for getting a book out there. It must have been hard. And then she goes through and writes a paragraph about every one of her siblings and something nice about them, which is long. because, As we said, she has 11 siblings. 
So back to the tabloids. She has a really hard time with the life in the fishbowl aspect of fame. Unlike Madonna, who had made a career out of shocking the public, I have tried to live and let live. And that seems to be the one thing certain elements of the public won't allow. Okay, she claims that she was called anti-Semitic for a joke she made. And then she gives the joke. And me and Ashley were like, what's wrong with this joke? And so we're like, okay, so what did you really say? I feel like she's Paris Hiltoning it and being like, this is all I said. I'm sorry if that's offensive. And you're like, yeah, that's not offensive. And then it's like, okay. But what did you say? <laughs> so like, what was offensive? Again, I don't think Dolly's anti-Semite. I think she is shockingly progressive for the time that she grew up in. In this book, in 1994, she's like standing up for gay and trans rights. Yes. So I want to give her credit for that. I just, I would like to know the story. And she broke up with a boyfriend in high school for saying something racist and being like, well, if that's how you feel. And that was in the 50s. Like, she is a very progressive person. Like, I'm sure she's made an off-color joke here and there. But I am like, I don't think this was the off-color joke. Because it wasn't. I mean, she was just talking about writing a show about Christians in the South and there was Jewish people in the writer's room. And she said, like, it must be hard for Jewish people to write this kind of character. I can imagine how hard it would be for a Jew to write this. It would be like a hillbilly trying to write the story of Judaism. Which feels, honestly, in today's climate, astute. Let people tell their own stories. I think it's a lot easier for a Jewish person to write a Christian story than a hillbilly to write a Jewish story. Whatever. Okay, that is true. But I don't think this is like an offensive thing. Like, to I don't say. know that this would gotten in the magazines, so I'd love to review. She tries to launch another TV show and it just doesn't go anywhere. This is something she has a really hard time with, and she's still, it seems, hopeful that it'll all work out for her in television. She gives you, like, five pages of reasons why this show didn't work out, and it's like, it's okay, Dolly. Maybe doing daytime television just isn't for you. I'm sure it's extra hard because she got her start doing a variety show, and now that yes. she can't helm a variety show herself, it is like, how could I be more famous than ever and more successful and, like, talented than ever, and I can't make it work now? It eats at her. The other thing is people don't really watch variety shows anymore. I mean, I think they did then. She talks about just how hard it is to make it in Hollywood. There's one bit of advice I could give to young people breaking into show business. It would be this. Don't assume the people on the inside know what they're doing. He may have a big office and a fancy suit. He may have the power to hire you or not, but he probably has no idea whether or not you have any talent. That is good advice. Even if he has an opinion, he probably has to clear it with the guys in an even bigger office with even more expensive suits. I will say people need more of the knock on every door mentality back. And I don't mean that and people don't work hard anymore. I just think that right now people get this like view of, okay, this is the gatekeeper and I must impress them. And it's like, no, that is literally one person's opinion. And there is another opinion somewhere else. So like if you believe in yourself, just try someone else. Although the ratio may be better in some businesses than others, show business is still essentially a man's world. As a woman, that can be difficult to deal with, especially if you're a five foot two blonde with a hick accent. In addition, the difficulty factor is multiplied by two for every cup size. In short, being a woman in show business is like being a bird dog in heat. If you stand still, they'll screw you. If you run, they'll bite you in the ass. I have learned to use all of that to my advantage. There are basically two kinds of men you have to deal with in business. The ones who want to screw you out of money and the ones who want to screw you, period. The second guy is the easiest to deal with. I should point out that I'm not interested in screwing anybody professionally. And I never want anything more than what's fair. The problem is I would never want anything less either. In the old boy school of business, if a woman walks away from the table with what's rightfully hers, the man feels screwed anyway. I mean, that is very astute. And then she talks about being on Steel Magnolias and how because she feels like she herself is a Steel Magnolia, how happy she was to be on that set and how proud she is of the work they did. Apparently, the director was really mean to her and to Julia Roberts because he wanted Meg Ryan but couldn't get her and felt like he got shifted and slighted by getting Julia Roberts. And then said to Dolly, she was a bad actress. She goes, of course, I'm a bad actress, but I'm a great personality. And it's your job as a director to make me look like a good actress. I recently saw an interview of Julia Roberts talking about what it was like to work with Dolly on that set. 
And I do think one thing about Dolly that doesn't come across in this book that I've heard anecdotally and I saw an inch of when she said that thing about if you're a star, you should always look the part is that she is deeply grateful for what she has. And if you see her, she oh will God. show up as a star. And Julia Roberts said that on set, you know, if it was 4 a.m. and super hot and there was no AC, she'd be complaining and Dolly never complained. And she goes, I prayed every day growing up for this life. I'm not going to complain about having it now. And then I think from her documentary, her manager was talking about being at a wedding with her and everyone at the wedding came up to take a photo. And he was like, doesn't that ever get annoying? And she goes, I worked my ass off so that these people would know who I am. And now I have to thank them. I'm grateful to be here and I'm lucky to do it. And I think maybe that's why I'm so okay with like the way that she has her public and private persona. Because when she's in public, she'll give you everything. And I think as what she has told you she'll give, she'll give it to you 100. And she's like, you want Dolly Parton? Every time I walk out the door and see you on the street, I am Dolly Parton. But like who I have in my house is none of your business. Yes. She talks about Dollywood and how she's proud of it. I don't know what Dollywood is. She talks about joking about her image, plastic surgery. Having plastic surgery is something I'm not embarrassed about. I have it done and I'll do it again when someone in my mirror doesn't look to me like it belongs to Dolly Parton. It may look like vanity and maybe some of it is, but to me it has more to do with feeling good about yourself. I feel it's my duty to myself and my public. My spirit is too beautiful and alive to live in a dilapidated old body if it doesn't have to. And she goes, I feel like it's not only a right but an obligation for a woman, especially a woman in the public eye, to look as good as she can. Whatever you are comfortable with and can afford, you should do. I mean, she does have some great little lines. People were always saying to me, show me your boobs, and I got tired of having to pull up my skirt to do it. (laughs) I think Dolly is a great person who has done a lot of good, and I I think it would be insane to be like, she's who we have to take down to make the world better. But she has this line, I'm currently involved in a project that I hope will make millions of women feel better about the way they look and ultimately themselves. I'm developing a line of cosmetics with a Revlon called the Dolly Parton Beauty Confidence Collection. I've always loved cosmetics, and I've spent my whole life finding out what really works. Now I want to share that with the public. And I was like, and here it is. I don't care if you're a Dolly Parton, a Bella twin. You've got to sell your wares. Whatever the last chapter of every bullshit memoir, and you'll know it's a bullshit memoir, but there's this chapter where it's like, and that's my life story, which brings me to the conclusion of this journey, a thing you can buy. (laughs) And all of that, like being assaulted as a kid and sold around and ripped down by the public has taught me something very important. And it's that a pre-cooked meal is really great, which is why I'm partnering with And you're like, okay, well, we've all got a mortgage, right? Ain't that the truth? She talks about the Trio album with Linda Ronstadt and Emmylou Harris. So their story is they did an episode of one of her original TV shows and it went great. She said it was some of the best country music in the world. They all just like sang live and figured it out. And I guess they thought that would make a great Trio album. And I don't know what the hell went wrong. She does not get into it, but she's like, you know, I hope one day we can get together and do a sequel, but we'll see. Love them. Love them despite everything you've heard. Yeah, she goes, one day I hope we can get together and do a sequel if we can ever get together. Do you, well, you guys, sorry. <laughs> sorry for what I said and maybe sorry for what you said. And then she gets into all the spooky things that have happened to her. And then she goes, I believe God is in you too. Maybe you don't. I've known a lot of atheists, but I've never known a happy one. Okay. Don't make God a burden. He's the lifter of burdens. Lay your burdens on him and go free and happy. I'm like, okay. Sell your wares and sell your prayers. <laughs> and then it ends with questions and answers, which are very much like... I wish you'd just answered them in the book, but it's fine. <laughs> and that was the episode. Thank you guys so much. Ashley, who do we love the most? Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Thank you, Daisy1122345. You are the most gorgeous little flower that I'm so grateful to have plucked out and put into our little podcast. Thank you, Wigs Weave Pieces. You are the most gorgeous pieces that I would love to whip back and forth. Thank you, A. Benet. A. Thank you for stopping by today. Thank you, Memoir Nerd. 
Thank goodness we live in an era where nerds are cool now because you are my president. Thank you, Jen Rose, for if I were the bachelorette, I would give you a rose, a rose for Jen. Thank you, Kim McGregor. You're the championship belt McGregor in my book. Thank you, Magic Sleep Coach. My goodness, you lull me to sleep knowing that you're out there being magic and listening to this podcast and giving us five-star reviews. Thank you, Mandy Rose 82 And if I were The Bachelorette and I had 82 more roses, I'd send them straight to you. Thank you, Coco Cobb. You are simply the most gorgeous ear of corn. Thank you, Annie Pie. I wish I could bake you up and eat you with some ice cream because you are the most incredible little a la mode. Okay, I think I've lost the plot and that didn't make any sense. But just know I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening.